Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing the 2011 film adaptation of John le Carre's classic novel Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, directed by Thomas Alfredson and starring a murderer's row of legendary British actors including Gary Oldman, John Hurt, Colin Firth, Mark Strong and more. Um, And this is a Patreon request from Abigail, so thank you very much for sponsoring this episode. This is one of me and Morgan's favourite contemporary films. We both are really big fans of John le Carre, we're very interested in Cold War history, and this film is a true masterpiece. It's fascinating, and we hope you all enjoy this episode, which is sure to be a good one. Um, We will keep the main spoiler until the end, because this is a mystery about uncovering a mole within the Secret Service. But we will kind of discuss some more general spoilers throughout the episode. And um, I'll remind you at the end again as well, but we did a previous John the Carry episode about um, one of his recent novels, A Legacy of Spies, which I kind of listened back to uh, the other day to see what it was like. And it was a really good one. So if you want to check out (laughs) a smart book episode where we talk about kind of contemporary politics and John the Carry's background, then I will put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, um, Morgan, should we kind of talk a bit about John le Carre as a writer and kind of the background of this book first? Yes. So I'm sure we'll be again repeating some stuff from that other episode, but it was a few years ago now and we have acquired new listeners since then. So we'll rehash a bit here. So John le Carre was, died just this past winter. He was quite old. He was born in 1931 in Dorset in England and had quite a difficult childhood and a pretty difficult relationship with his father. His mother left when he was very young and he didn't meet her until he was an adult. And if you're interested in that part of his life, he wrote about it in his memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, which I have not read, but he also drew on it very heavily for his most autobiographical novel, A Perfect Spy, which I love and highly recommend. Great book. And he also drew on his life in that novel in that he went on to sort of study in Bern, which he sort of fictionalizes in the book, um, and then came back and studied at Oxford and taught at Eton and I think another uh, public school for a while and wound up somehow getting recruited to MI5 around this point in his life and later worked for MI6 in Europe as well. Obviously, There's lots of information out there about that, but we're not going to go into too much detail. But his career ended as a result of the Kim Philby affair. Um, Kim Philby was the most famous double agent probably in the 20th century. He was a very posh, upper-class British man who was working for Moscow. And a lot of members of the British Secret Intelligence Service had to sort of quit because (laughs) he had given all their information to the Russians. And so then when they figured out that he was a double agent, they had to stop. And this was like a huge news story as well. So that was kind of, you know, 1950s era. This book was initially written in 1973. So when this book was written, John le Carre was already an extremely successful and established spy novelist. And this uh, scandal was kind of very familiar to the target audience. So kind of the idea was that there was this one guy, Kim Philby, who was kind of the ringleader, but there were you know, these five people who were recruited either during or shortly after studying at Cambridge, very upper class, went into the Secret Service and various kind of parts of the government and were completely undetected for years. And also there were 
are estimated like 20 other spies in same positions who they just never found. So there's all these people who potentially just like are now, you know, probably dead, but like <laughs> retired happily, potentially. Um, and kind of the ending of the Kim, Kim Philby uh, affair ended with Kim just retiring to Russia. Happy, happily ever after. And he wanted to meet Le Carre because he read this novel, which is kind of based on him. And Le Carre was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I think maybe no. Because um, I guess he went to Moscow for some you know, conference or something, you know, many decades later. But um, he was already writing novels when he was still working in intelligence, which I assume is at least part of the reason why he used a pseudonym. And the earliest books that he wrote, which feature a character named George Smiley, who does resemble the Smiley of this book and the sequels, although he's also kind of different and not as complicated. They're much shorter and they're kind of more structured, like mystery novels. And they just don't have the same kind of like density as his later books would have. I mean, he's certainly not the first person to write like spy books, but I think the modern conception of like what a spy novel is really comes from yeah. the seventies and his writing. The Bond books started, you know, a decade before him in the kind of immediate post-war era and became really pop like mainstream in terms of pop culture with the movies, which was like the sixties. So by this point this was sort of the the gritty realist Cold War reboot to the corniness of the previous most successful uh, spy novelist. <laughs> yes. And his huge breakout was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which predates Tinker Taylor and um, is kind of like the bridge between those early Smiley novels and the Carla trilogy, which the Tinker Taylor is the first in that series. And it's also like pretty short, but it has more sort of complicated themes and there's a really great black and white movie of that book. Yes. So if you want to check out a classic vintage spy movie, great, great choice. Yeah, really, really good. Starring Richard Burton, I believe. In the uh, Guardian obituary of Lacari from December, there was a great little bit about his reaction to the success of that book, which apparently left him first astonished and then conflicted. His manuscript had been approved by the Secret Service because it was sheer fiction from start to finish. That's a quote from him. And so it couldn't possibly represent a breach in security. This was not, however, the view taken by the world's press, which with one voice decided that the book was not merely authentic, but some kind of revelatory message from the other side, leaving me with nothing to do but sit tight and watch in a kind of frozen awe as it climbed the bestseller list and stuck there while pundit after pundit heralded it as the real thing. And I think that reception, which has a lot in common with the way that Tinker Taylor was received too, conflates with the fact that he invented all of this jargon for Yeah, like books. the term mole and the term honey trap are literally created by him. <laughs> yes. And there's a bunch of jargon that he uses in these books that is specific to him and has not sort of spread elsewhere. Like he calls the intelligence service in the UK, the circus, and there's all this various other stuff that is just him. But things like mole and honey trap and various other terms just like became words that are used both in fiction and also like in the real world. I think it was like in his like later years because he continued to write spy novels for like the rest of his life and became this massive kind of cultural fixture. He would have sort of people who worked in the espionage industry come to him and be like, oh, I was like influenced by you or like, where'd you get these ideas and that sort of thing. So people, it was one of these things where like a 
fictional novelist who works in real life is getting sources from real life. But also it's like, you're influencing stuff like too much. Well, I, he came up with the term, according to Wikipedia, Moscow Center, which, which is like, shows up in every, you know, Cold War spy thing everywhere. And like, that was just his, you know, anglicized version of the name for the KGB, whatever. And it's just wild to think about how influential he was in terms of like the West's conception of how all this was going down. And there's obviously a level of romanticization that came with that. Like you're talking about these agents decades later sort of going to him, which did happen. And it's so funny because if you actually read the books, that is not the tone that he is striking. Well, this is the thing, right? Because I think part of the reason also why like I mean, people are always kind of attracted to the idea that something that's really dark and gritty is like the real version. But when you read this, you're like, this does feel like, obviously, we we were not alive during the Cold War, but it feels authentic kind of emotionally and conceptually. I mean, his characters are incredibly well well observed, or rather, his male characters are incredibly (laughs) well well observed, especially kind of in terms of just the British class system and how all of that stuff was unfolding in the intelligence community this time we will definitely be talking about that but just in terms of like the sense of paranoia and repression was like very familiar to that entire generation of people yeah I mean I can understand why people thought it was extremely authentic because in some ways it is even though kind of the specifics of the intelligence service were so utterly fictionalized that MI5 was like sure publish and be damned yes and I think there's something about the way he writes that is satisfying on like a sort of id level when you read like I love spy stories I like I love his books I would not approve of like (laughs) the actions taken by these organizations right but there is something satisfying about like people pretending to be other people and lying and like all of the scheming and whatever like that's part of the satisfaction of the movie in particular which, like, to me, this is the ultimate, like, comfort movie. Because it's just, like, a <laughs> mystery. There's a problem to be solved. There are a bunch of, like, great British actors. It's all it's made beautifully, right? It's so think, funny that you're describing this as comfort viewing. It's, like, the most depressing <laughs> I know. Trust me, I'm aware. But, like, there was a period. This came out right before my parents got divorced. I'm not going to get into details. But I definitely, like, watched it a lot. Because I was just, like, I just want to think about something else. And, like, I want it to be good. But, like, I wasn't... very ironic, because it's a divorce movie. (laughs) I know. But I wasn't in the mood at that time to be watching something, like, cheerful, like a romantic comedy, right? But I wanted to watch, like, a good movie. And I watched this movie a lot. Which is interesting, because I actually think this novel is a lot more kind of, like, emotionally painful than the movie is. Which we'll kind of talk about when we talk about the end later. But, um, I think... Part of what's great about his writing in the books that are good, some of his books are just not good. He wrote a lot of novels. Some of them are bad. Is that he balances that sense of just like pleasure in reading something that's kind of suspenseful and you want to figure out what's happening with a sense of like you're reading literature because he's so smart about observing Englishness And when he does manage to convey sort of emotional pain in a real way, which he doesn't always succeed in doing, but when he does, it's really sort of persuasive and painful. And that balance between 
just something that's satisfying that you tear through and something that is really thought provoking is really hard to pull off, I think. And I think that's why he's like, you know, one of the most successful novelists of the past hundred years. And this book in particular has to be if the best selling one over over the course of time. It's obviously legendary, particularly in Britain. There was a miniseries made in 1979, which I've never seen. People love it. I'm sure it's good. But anytime this movie comes up, you get people who are like, but the miniseries is what's really great. And like, genuinely, like, it's great if people love that thing. I have no beef. But I'm not interested because I, mean, I just love this Artistically, movie, so. this film is just, you know, it's a masterpiece. They're kind of going for different things and they're made 40 years apart. So it's a bit of an apples and oranges situation. But, you know. <laughs> yes. And the director of this film, Thomas Alfredson, said in one of the interviews I read, like, Le Carre really wanted the movie made because there hadn't been a film made of this book. And he was really particularly emotionally attached to this one and his books got made in movies a lot and again that miniseries is really beloved by a lot of people particularly in the UK but having a movie is a kind of different thing it's just more accessible so that was part of the impetus of remaking it I think. The backstory of this film getting made is like it's pretty interesting because it's one of these th things where the end product is fantastic but it wasn't sort of Thomas Alfredson came forward and was like, this is the work I want to do. It was, you know, the initial project was screenwriter Peter Morgan uh, wanted to do it. And it would have been a much cornier film with him in charge. You know, he is known for stuff like The Queen and Frost Nixon. You know, I don't disrespect Peter Morgan, but it's not the same situation. And like there was a period where Park Chan-wook, who would have been an amazing choice for director, was considering doing it. Um, and in the end, the screenplay was co-written by Peter Strawn and uh, Bridget O'Connor, who passed away before the film was finished. So it's kind of dedicated to her. But um, they wrote this wonderful adaptation. Yeah, Thomas Alfredson, he is... Um, best known for a movie called Let the Right One In. He's a Swedish director. And um, that was a vampire movie that came out in 2008. Fantastic movie, as I recall. I've not watched it recently, but um, it was remade in America in what I'm going to go ahead and assume is probably not as interesting a way. <laughs> and that kind of kicked off him doing his first film in English, which was Tinker Tailor. And he clearly had a lot of really interesting ideas for how to adapt this. It is fascinating to kind of look at the creative team for this film, which is just stacked with talent and it's it's a very European creative team which I think kind of fits in with John le Carre's vision because although the book and the characters are very English and there's a lot of kind of commentary about the British class system and there's lots of very English characters it's a very European story as all his stories are because they're about the Cold War and his last novels were kind of very much like a sort of post-Brexit like look back on those times so um also after Tinker Tailor Obviously, we were extraordinarily excited for Thomas Alfredson's next film because we were both such huge fans of this. And his next film uh, turned out to be The Snowman, which initially sounded like it'd be quite exciting due to the quality of the director. But uh, no, it, The Snowman, famously a huge, huge garbage pile. They released it without finishing it. <laughs> yes. So I find Alfredson pretty fascinating because he just has one of the most mystifying and inexplicable careers of like any filmmaker working today to me. Um, I only saw Let the Right One In once. I saw it in theaters and I really liked it. And then this is one of my favorite movies. And um, I have seen The Snowman and it's 
truly one of the worst movies I, I have mean, ever seen. I mean, it's main claim to fame, unless you're a film buff who knows about how it was a huge disaster that was released without being finished, is that meme where it's just a little cartoon picture of a snowman. It's like, <laughs> Mr. Policeman, you told me all the clues. <laughs> I mean, what a legacy, honestly. But like, you can tell watching it that they didn't finish it. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, they just, a scene will just happen and you're like, I don't know what's going on. There are all of these scenes where Michael Fassbender is just, like, lying down on the pavement somewhere because, like, he's drunk. I don't know. <laughs> it is mystifyingly awful. Um, I don't really know what happened. I mean, I know they didn't finish it, but I don't know what was going on. And since then, he's made, like, a Swedish comedy. And they've been saying forever that, like, there's a, a sequel to Tinker Taylor in development, but God knows if it'll ever happen. But he's he did a brilliant job on this one. And... I think it's really a situation where like the pieces just all came together because I think this script, I don't think it's a perfect script, but I think it is a pretty astonishing screenplay. Bridget O'Connor, as you said, died before the film was released, which is really very sad. She had cancer. Um, she was pretty young. But her husband and co-writer Peter Strahd also did the adaptation of Wolf Hall for the BBC, which I think is another like superlative adaptation of a huge book it's actually both of the first two books in that series that's a lot of material to it's cover in a pretty series. short amount of time he also did the screenplays for the snowman and the goldfinch which uh did not succeed but i feel like that was probably not his fault but clearly like these were people who really understood how to like distill a really complicated novel into a movie and the movie itself is also very complicated you kind of have to watch it a couple times to know what's going on if you haven't read the book but i just think it's a real feat of figuring out how best to convey a really complicated plot and like where to move things around so that they get sort of delivered in the right way. I mean, so like the, 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 the editing in terms of like non-dialogue scenes in this film is absolutely yeah. stunning. As we all know, literary adaptations are the bread and butter of the British drama industry. And for the most part, they are very obvious, verging on corny. And with this film, it is a protagonist-led film, you know, with a cast of beloved British character actors set in a relatively familiar setting. And in absolutely no other regard is it like a typical literary adaptation. Because like just watching this, the first kind of 10 minutes or so, you know, you have a preamble where you see uh, one of the characters get shot in Budapest to kind of kick off the drama. And then you're kind of introduced to Gary Oldman's protagonist character, George Smiley, who is completely wordless. And there's loads of just sort of editing between different scenes um, with little to no dialogue during the first 10 minutes, just to introduce the vibe. You really have to pay attention during this movie because it's this extremely intricate plot, which they did trim down significantly, but really cleverly between the book and the film. But like, it's not generally information that's being told to you. You know, you have to let it build up until you reach the end. And a lot of that is just sort of like reactions and vibes during dialogue-free scenes, which is incredible and rare. <laughs> well, and a lot of the book is, I mean, the whole book really, with a few exceptions, is Smiley either going to talk to people and getting information from them about the sort of problem he's trying to uncover, which is like, who is the bull in the secret intelligence service or going through documents and like reading them and thinking about them, which it's is very not dry. <laughs> easily dramatized. And the film just does a great job of making that 
interesting and of conveying thought in a way that feels engaging. There's a specifically a like little montage pretty near the end of the movie where he figures it out. And it's the best example of a movie showing a character like having an epiphany in a way that feels really cinematic. And isn't Sherlock. <laughs> yes. But like he's just sitting on a couch and like there's they you know they cut to other things and there's they do a lot a great thing with sound like they're playing another character talking but you totally feel the sense of like a realization kind of dawning but it just works i don't really know why they just did a really good job and i think it's it's like how it's hard to depict genius and creativity in movies because those are such abstract and internal concepts that like it is really difficult and like Sherlock is a great comparison because it's such a sort of hackneyed bad depiction of these kinds of things but it is really hard to do that stuff and this movie does such a good job of having a central character who is thinking all the time and observing and you always have a sense that there's a lot going on in his head and you don't necessarily know what that is but you know that he's thinking really hard. Yeah. I mean, there's all these fantastic scenes in the book where he is interrogating people and he's not really asking questions. He's basically just sitting silently and sort of nudging people and not giving away whether he thinks the information they've given him is useful or not and keeping all of his cards to his chest. And kind of the one moment where Carla, who is the head of the kind of Russian spy network and is the chief antagonist in these books. The one moment where Carla is essentially visible is when he's kind of, is when Smiley discusses a point where they met him and Carla just completely outwitted him by saying nothing at all and leaving Smiley to just like sweat it out and talk of his own volition. But um, this is a pretty unusual role for Gary Oldman, who um, obviously has a great deal of variety in his filmography, but is known for really big, performances often quite corny performances he's done you know a variety of kind of more oscar roles but he's also done lots of villains um and he is known for kind of having quite a a dark overtone to many of his roles possibly because he is reputedly not an enormously pleasant person in real life but this is um a very restrained role for him like extremely subtle a lot of it is just him looking at stuff through his enormous uh, George Smiley glasses, which are just sort of reflecting everything so you can't see his eyes properly. <laughs> and he's kind of at the centre of this cast of characters where many of them are kind of a lot more showy or a lot more soft and squishy and emotionally vulnerable. And then you've got this kind of older middle-aged man in a grey suit just sort of frowning with no lips, looking like a cold lizard. <laughs> he reminds me of like a turtle. Like his head kind of pokes out of his suit. I think he's, I mean, you know, we don't need to get into all the details of Gary Oldman's personal problems, but, you know, we're aware of them. But I think he's so incredible in this movie. He is just astounding. And I think he can be really fun in those kind of big flashy roles. I haven't seen a ton of his stuff from the 90s, but I have seen Rosencrantz. The Fifth Element, Dracula. (laughs) Yes. What I always think of is um, Leon the Professional, where he just, like, screams. And it's great fun. Like, he's really good in that, but it's so bombastic and huge. And then, yeah, Dracula is a different kind of bigness. And then, like, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. He's so wonderful in that movie. And it's not, like, 
an over-the-top performance exactly, but it's definitely like in a comic register, obviously. And this performance is just so interior and restrained. And I feel like I remember interviews at the time where he was like, they just kept telling me like, don't do anything. (laughs) Like, just do nothing and just like, you know, observe. And when he does have to kind of react or the one scene where he's kind of discussing Carla, which you were mentioning, he and Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays his kind of, you know, lackey, get drunk and they're having this conversation. It's still not like a big showy scene, but he's giving away more than he is in the rest of the movie for the most part. And it is so good. And I don't even really know what to say about it, except that like, it's just a great piece of acting. And because he's the center of the film, it's so important that he is as good as he is. Like every component of the movie, and we'll talk about a bunch of the technical stuff, is also great. But I don't think the movie works if that performance isn't as good as it is, even with everything else being so fantastic. I mean, Smiley's role in these books is to be, I mean, while he is kind of the the mastermind, his role is to be like the neutral figure because everyone else has like some cataclysm going on or is like eccentric in some way. And like Smiley does have this massive personal vulnerability, which is that um, his wife is constantly cheating on him. And uh, in the book, this is a far more blatant and continuous problem throughout his marriage, but they tone it down more in the film. So it's like, we know that they've split up and we know that she has been unfaithful, but it's a bit more kind of subtle. The, the, the film does kind of like change some things around in terms of the female characters. But um, before we kind of go any further, should we go into a bit more uh, extrapolation about the actual concept of the film? Because I feel like there's probably going to be some listeners who have reached yeah. the halfway point and it's like, thank you very much for listening. But uh, <laughs> um, without kind of spoiling, the general setup is that Smiley is one of the uh, senior members of the circus, aka the Secret Service. But he has kind of recently been forced into retirement along with several other people after the death of Control, who is the boss and he is played by the marvelous John Hurt, one of the many character actors in this film. <laughs> and then there's like various kind of surrounding figures who are senior members of that kind of establishment who remain behind after George Smiley's been pushed out. So you've got um, Colin Firth is playing Bill Hayden, who is this kind of charismatic, older, middle-aged, like posh man. And then you have Mark Strong is a field agent who is uh, Bill Hayden, Colin Firth's best friend from university. So they're like a long-standing BFFs. Um, you've got Kieran Hines, whom I love as one of the other kind of senior members of the circus. And you've also got a couple of other figures, including Toby Jones playing Percy Alleline, who is like the new boss, who's this slight sort of social climber who has ideas about how they should move the circus forward and he is very proud of the fact that he's cultivated this new Soviet source which is getting him in with a government minister and getting kind of more funding and pride for the circus after a period when they've just not been terribly successful and they're concerned they're concerned about Britain's place in the Cold War at this juncture and kind of the other two characters you've got are Tom Hardy and Benedict Cumberbatch Benedict Cumberbatch as Morgan says is playing a younger agent who works for George Smiley And then Tom Hardy is playing a kind of freelance field agent who goes overseas and sort of cultivates sources. And there is a bit of a kind of a class thing going on here where he is visibly much less posh than the other actors. And it's kind of dressed differently because all the characters who are kind of 
in the circus are very sort of staid and suit wearing. We will discuss costumes and production design because they are both incredible and fascinating in this film. But um, so you have lots of really fascinating men in this movie, some of whom are very close to the way they are in the book and some of whom are changed quite a lot more. Like Benedict Cumberbatch's Peter Gwillem is essentially being given a page one rewrite. (laughs) Well, this is one of the smart things that the adaptation does. I think it's generally very faithful to the book, but as you mentioned earlier, they make some changes to the way women are depicted in the novel because that is Lacarius' problem. It's less of a problem in this book than in some of his other novels because the women just aren't central figures. Yeah, I mean, the woman who is the most there is Arena, who is um, Tom Hardy slash Ricky Tarr's uh, source slash lover. And in the book, you mostly see her through Ricky Tarr's eyes while he's kind of recounting his experiences with her through a very intentionally very biased lens. But he's also portraying her as like, oh, there's this like, you know, sexy mad woman who's having a nervous breakdown and is leaving her husband. And in the film, you know, they portray her with a bit more sensitivity. And we also see her physically herself as a person and her relationship with Ricky Tarr. Yeah, they don't even, as you say, it's not like that stuff has changed that much in terms of like plot it's just tonally very different and Lacare's big thing is he just loved to write women who were crazy and sexy either they were old and ugly or they were crazy and sexy that was pretty much the two options and so I mean you've got a great small role for Kathy Burke who is kind of the one woman who was really in had like an, an influential role within the circus and she's someone else who got pushed out and she's playing this rather eccentric lady who's now living as the sort of, um, she's like running a student house in Cambridge and then Smiley goes back to visit her to talk about, you know, the problems with the potential mole. Yes. And that character similarly is, she's interesting in the book, but there's a quality of like... She's truly all over the place and also yeah. quite oversexed, but in a in a sort of... um perverse and morbid way because of course it's horrifying that an old unattractive woman right. would be sexy <laughs> yeah and i do think he has some sympathy for her and she comes back in the subsequent novels but it's objectionable <laughs> and i think they just they still manage to make her a bit sort of kooky and out of it but it works fundamentally sympathetic in this and then the Gwillem character in the novel is like 40 and just like sleeping with 20 year olds but also described as like needing to grow up and you're like but he's 40 years old like what? I mean in a very plausible way like he is the protagonist of one of the later much later books but um he is kind of positioned as like here's this like sleaze bag who probably shouldn't be sleeping with 20 year olds <laughs> oh yeah it's it's not like the carry is like oh this sounds great but yeah. it also you're it's like, all very oh, sorted come on. and in the film they cast Benedict Cumberbatch who's like early 30s at the time and they make him gay and it's not like there's not a lot about that, but it's like subtly sort of inserted into the movie. And I just think that that adds a lot of helpful texture. Yeah. And it's a really good role for him because like he's not not playing to type because you can obviously see kind of elements of other roles he's played in it, but he is not playing a lead character and he's not playing the sort of brash Sherlock type, which he has been very much typecast as for the past like decade. (laughs) It's a really fun role for him, I think. And also like the fact that there were a lot of closeted gay and bisexual men working in the Secret Service is sort of a really key part of this story and is very tied into, you know, the realities of all of these sort of upper class men who studied 
classics at Oxbridge and then went straight into the Secret Service after World War II. And if you look at kind of the Cambridge Five, Guy Burgess was like one of the key players. And the fact that he could live as a double agent is very much kind of, you know, if you're going to psychoanalyze it, it's a lot easier to do that when you already know how to live as a double agent in your personal life because you're in the closet. So he is like kind of known for just having completely different personalities in the different parts of his life. Well, and also in America, there was the like lavender panic yeah. in the State Department and the CIA where, you know, McCarthy and Roy Cohn, ironically, and these various people were saying that all of these, you know, gay men were communists. And they yes, it's like the, the idea government. of just like t- drawing a direct line between communism and being queer. Yeah, and it was just a moral panic, basically. And so that was what I was thinking of. In, there's a scene where Smiley kind of says, like, if you have anything you need to tie up, you're going to get surveilled now. So, like, you should take care of that. And clearly he kind of knows what's going on, but doesn't explicitly say so. So I just think that's, like, really smart writing. And I think I think Cumberbatch is really good in this movie. It kind of gives you a window into, like, what his career could have been like if he had <laughs> yeah. made smarter choices. I'm sure whenever we've done any podcast with a Cumberbatch character, I've just been like, please, if only he can be a character actor, just do that instead. <laughs> well, he's just playing a normal guy in this, right? Like, obviously, no one who's working for, like, MI6 is truly normal. But basically, he's just playing a normal person. And he's very good. Yeah. But also, one of the things I really like is, like, there's a couple of moments where his character is basically faking charisma and sort of faking, not exactly being flirty, but he's sort of just being like fun with people like at the office in the way that people do. And when it's coming from like Colin Firth's character, it's much more authentic. But when Benedict Cumberbatch's character is just completely fake because you see the rest of the time he's like quite repressed. But when he's doing that, it's precisely the same performance as when he is unconvincingly supposedly being charismatic in other films. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't ring true. I think Tom Hardy, it's interesting that they're both in this because obviously they were kind of like peaking earlier in their career at similar points. Yeah. And they wanted Fassbender for the Tom Hardy role. And he, I think he was doing X-Men anyway. He couldn't, for for some reason, he couldn't do this. It would have been a very different vibe. I love Tom Hardy in this role. His wig obviously is like legendary, um, but like his soft voice in this is truly amazing. Yeah. And I think it's again... Like, oh, you could have had a career like this. Not that his career is over by any means, but like, it's been, he's been 10 years of doing like random bullshit that is not good. And this is like the last movie he did where he just spoke with his normal voice and played a normal human. And he's great. He is fantastic. And he's so soft and vulnerable. Love him. But also, like, very, very charismatic, like, extremely charming in a way that almost nobody else in the movie is because yeah. it's kind of his job requires that of him. Yeah, right? his because job is to go and seduce this woman or instantly have a rapport with everyone he meets. Yeah. And you just feel that from him and the opposite of what we're saying about Cumberbatch, right? Like it just bleeds off of him so believably. And he just feels very persuasive and like pleasurable to watch and i was like you did the fucking revenant like what are you doing man like this just makes no fucking sense so it again sort of like a sliding doors thing with both of them they peaked early well you know maybe if they like mark strong had gone bald early (laughs) then (laughs) well every single actor in this movie is like 
perfectly cast from the book. And all of the roles except Oldman are quite small. Like Cumberbatch probably has the second most screen time, but it's not like he's got a bunch of like big scenes. It's just that he happens to be in the background of a lot of stuff. But the book is obviously such a legendary tome that like every single actor in Britain was like, yes, I would happily be in this for five minutes, right? Like Colin Firth is a big movie star and he's not he playing like a, you know, important role in this, but he's not in the movie that much. And similarly, John Hurt is like a legend of the screen and he's got like seven minutes maybe of screen time. I mean, right? it's very funny to me that Kieran Hines is the one who has the least to do in terms of acting yeah. in this film. Because Toby Jones actually has like a very fun role and he gets to do an accent. He's so he's doing a lot with yeah. his screen time. But Kieran Hines, the marvellous Kieran Hines, is really just doing nothing. <laughs> he's just present. <laughs> he just is, yep, he's just there. But like, wouldn't you want to be in Tinker Taylor's Yeah, Soldier I mean, Spy? absolutely. I'm not saying it's a bad role. It's just like, it's quite funny that like, you get to hire Kieran Hines to just have presence. <laughs> right. But that's part of the pleasure of watching this is that they are all like, I mean, a couple of the actors aren't people whose names I immediately know. They're more like British TV type people, but they're also yeah. excellent. But the proportion of these actors who are genuinely like screen legends is pretty staggering. But Mark Strong, who you mentioned, I think is like unbelievable in this movie. Again, with not very much screen time. I think that character has a lot more sort of screen time, if you will, in the novel. And that's kind of my main problem with the adaptation, which I will talk about when we talk about spoilers at the end, because it's related to spoilers. But his charisma is so wild. And like, he's mainly known for doing just like, sort of villain performances in dumb movies. He's in Cruella coming out this summer. I mean, I assume he's playing the bad guy. I just, it seems like a safe assumption. But uh, I think this was probably the first thing I'd seen him in where he wasn't playing the bad guy. And I was like, oh, he's so good at not playing the bad guy. Like, he's playing the most sympathetic character in the whole movie. I mean, maybe you should watch the Kingsman film starring Colin Firth, which is fully the wildest fact that Colin Firth starred in this and Kingsman within short, because like, could not be more opposite. <laughs> I have seen the first Kingsman movie. I saw it in the theater, I believe. I don't remember it very well, but I do remember that they were both in it. I think they're quite good friends in real life, which yeah. is very nice. I mean, the one thing I will say about Kingsman is that Colin Firth is like really attractive in it, but conceptually, I do not approve. <laughs> no, I agree. But, um, like, the thing about Mark Strong that I kind of admire is, that, like, he just doesn't care. <laughs> like, he is not interested in being a famous person. He does five movies a year, and he's great in all of them, and we're not going to watch most of them. I remember I saw him in the, a stage production of um, A View from the Bridge, the Arthur Miller play, that was, I think, the best, like, production of a play I have ever seen. And he was the single best performance I've ever seen, like, live in a play. I saw that play twice. It was so good. And um, I remember in, like, the press at the time, there were all these quotes from, like, Ian McKellen and other, like, luminaries of, you know, British theatre who were like, he is one of the best living actors. And you just wouldn't know. And he just doesn't want to be famous. He likes to live in London. He doesn't want to go to Los Angeles. And, like, he... he this, it's fine. He's happy with his life. And you know what? That seems preferable 
to a lot of other people. So great. But I think he's like this secret weapon who gets kind of like deployed in these movies. And um, yeah, I think he's so good in this and uh, great wig on him also. And he has a great rapport with a child in this movie, which like one more can you ask for? Yeah, it's it's great because like, um, I mean, this is only a minor spoiler because it's like the first scene, but he is the character, he plays the character who gets shot in the very first scene. And obviously he's not dead, but then has to go undercover where he becomes a teacher at a British private school for boys. And he befriends like the loner boy. He's living in a caravan on the school grounds and he befriends this loner kid. And you kind of immediately see like, oh, Mark Strong's character is the loner. Jim Prudeau is the loner and this kid's the loner. And it's kind of like a meeting of similar people, but you also can tell that he is cultivating this child as a source <laughs> is to, to kind of be a little spy for him. And it's just a fascinating little piece of character work because as Morgan said, Mark Strong feels sort of vulnerable in this, but also one of his first scenes is like, you know, he's teaching a class and all these boys are sort of making fun of this weird new teacher. And then like an owl falls into the fireplace and his response is to immediately murder the owl in cold blood in front of all these boys. And it like it's like, oh, okay, he's like just terrifying. But it also reminded me of like my grandparents. Just reminds me of stories that they would have about being at school in Britain in like the 1930s or whatever. Just absolutely horrifying environment. Um, and this also kind of gives you, you know, the viewpoint of where all of these characters originally came from because they would all have gone to like horrible all boys schools where it's just essentially institutional child abuse for 10 years and then they all went to Oxbridge where they were further emotionally warped potentially by being recruited by the Soviets and then they all became spies in our circumstances where they all just constantly have to lie to themselves and others and can never have a functioning relationship so it's a great <laughs> scenario which continues on to this day in other forms and it's why we have Boris Johnson I mean you just mic drop that like we're, what more could we say <laughs> let's move on this episode's gonna be so fucking long let's move on to the craft stuff We've talked about the actors, but all of the craftspeople yes. who worked on this movie, it's un it's unreal. Like geniuses across the board. Well, everyone is a masterpiece. Morgan, would you like to start with yes. cinematography? This was shot by Hoiti Van Hoitima, who also shot Let the Right One In and her, the Spike Jones movie, which I thought was interesting. I had not remembered that he shot that. But our listeners, if they are familiar with his name, probably know him for being the cinematographer on Christopher Nolan's more recent movies. I think the first one he shot was Interstellar, and I think he's done all of them since then. Yeah, and he did Ad Astra, which we did a yeah. podcast about last I think year. he's one of the best working cinematographers. I think he is just a genius. This applies to everything we're going to say about the sort of visual look of the film, but this movie is obviously attempting to recreate the feeling of the sort of great 70s paranoia thrillers like the you know Pacula films and other movies that were coming out of America in the 70s and it doesn't it's not attempting to like exactly pastiche those movies like it looks like its own thing but it definitely is drawing on movies like All the President's Men and Clute and various other things and um there are so many movies that have come out in the decades since that are inspired by those movies and try to kind of mimic them and do not do that successfully. 
I remember when, for instance, Captain America, uh, The Winter Soldier came out and the directors were like, this is really a 70s spy thriller. And like, I obviously love that movie, but like, come on, this is just absurd. I mean, visually, nonsense. No. And I had not seen the movies I was just mentioning when I first saw this movie, but I've watched a bunch of them in the past year and watching this this time, I was like, oh, I get what they're doing now. Like, it really has the feeling of what those movies look and feel like. And there's a quote from Alfredson who says, we tried to, me and Hoitima and Hoitima, the DP, create a sense of paranoia. The scenes were designed to have a feeling as if there was a stranger in the room. So we tried to find the voyeuristic perspective. And as you might notice, a lot of it is shot from outside through a window or peeping holes. Um, and I would add, there's a lot of like long shots in this movie. And he says, that was one idea we had. We also discussed the possibility of translating a scent into visuals, trying to imagine damp tweed, the scent of damp tweed, or, you know, cabbage or something. How would that look if you made a film that had that scent? And that is what the film feels like, which is conveyed in the production design and costumes as well, which you can I mean, there's about. just so much hazy vague cigarette smoke even though you don't see a lot of really overt smoking i'm sure every single person would have had a cigarette in their mouth for 100 percent of the yeah. time in reality but um it's just like so much brown and gray everywhere and kind of the classic 1970s palette for modern films set, set in the 70s is you put like a ton of orange in and loads of mustard and they have some of that like there's orange accents but they don't overdo it so it just feels like very subdued and depressed yes I think part of what is so successful about this movie is that, like, it's not trying to look aesthetically pleasing to us in, like, 2011, right? It is. <laughs> and yet it looks beautiful, because, right. like, the framing and all the lighting, like, they have so many, like, soft light sources and, like, things filtering from side to side and, like, it just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Yeah, no, I mean, like, it's one of the most beautiful movies, movies I've ever seen, but it's not tied to a 21st century idea of like what is aesthetically desirable so like the hair for instance is just not attempting to like look good you mentioned the tom hardy wig which i remember everyone making fun of that at the time and like it's clearly a wig but on the other hand i was like have you seen pictures of men in the 70s people had that exact haircut and then the men who were balding had these like weird comb overs <laughs> Because that's just how people wore their hair. And like costumes and the production design too. It's so, again, pleasurable to like look at and consume as the viewer. But it's not attempting to be like, does this look cool or hip for like the 21st century? And the production designer is a woman named Maria Jerkovich, who is just like a genius. This is the best designed movie I've ever seen like I don't know how the fuck she did it it's unbelievable it's absolutely fascinating I mean clearly it's one of these things where like it's an obsessive attention to detail like reading the book over and over again apparently and also having the kind of freedom to do something interesting because a lot of filmmakers are maybe not interested in that level of obsession Thomas Alfredson is that obsessive and also he personally had a lot of ideas apparently they interviewed like you know, dozens of different production designers until they found someone who understood what he was trying to talk about, you know. And there is a lot of incredible locations and sets in this film. But one that's extremely striking is just the circus itself, which is, you know, this multi-floor building in central London where all the spies are housed. And it's fascinating because like you watch it and you're like, this is so kind of specific that like it must be modeled on something real. 
And it's like, it's not. Thomas Alfredson had this idea and then Maria Jerkovich executed it in this incredibly smart way. So like the idea is, you know, you've got the building, which is the kind of the shell of the place. You've got several floors, the top floor of which is where like the main business happens for the tip top spies. But in that section, it's like basically kind of a warehouse space. And inside that warehouse, you have small kind of separate porta cabins. So it's not like a normal room. It's just like another building that's inside the warehouse. And those are the individual offices. And the main office they have for like the meetings is sort of orange hued. So it feels like more visually interesting than the gray stuff around it. And it gives you like a nice backdrop and texture for all these kind of gray suited men in the foreground and is immediately very memorable. But it just feels incredibly claustrophobic because it's this small like space with fake windows and like all this padding for the sound stuff. And it kind of really emphasizes kind of the idea of security and like the different levels that people, the different bubbles people have in their lives. But yeah, it's just this amazing kind of visual idea that was just like dreamt up by Thomas Alfredson's like vision of what this should look like. Because obviously kind of there are descriptions in the book, but there's not a great deal of kind of complexity of visual design happening in the offices of the book. It's just a fantastic piece of design. And then kind of in terms of the characters, you get several different characters' houses. And it's always kind of interesting to see like which characters in a film or TV show you see where they live, because that already tells you like a lot about that character. So, I mean, the main house we see is George Smiley's and it's this very kind of old fashioned, gray and depressing house. And all of the houses in this movie have like incredibly fucking depressing paintings in them, which are all just sort of gray and nondescript, neither completely abstract or like murky buildings in the background. But then at another point, the travel to like this senior minister's house and it's like very modern sort of mid-20th century big windows and like very chic because he cares more about his appearances and you see uh peter grill and bendit cumberbatch's house which is just sort of like a more modest apartment where he lives with his boyfriend and then most of the other characters you don't know anything about where they live because they're complete enigmas and that's part of the problem because we as the audience shouldn't be getting more clues about them in terms of whether they're the mole because we just need to focus exclusively on the evidence and like the only other person we know about where they're living is Jim Prudeau who is isolated because he's living in this like decrepit trailer in the mud (laughs) which is just fully illustrative of his emotional state (laughs) yeah all all true uh I love that modern house of Lakin's the minister at the beginning you only see it in the one scene but it like does so much to establish him and the whole scene (laughs) yes this sort of world. Oh, and one and one final thing as well on top of that in terms of just the whole production design. I read a little quote from the set dresser, Tatiana McDonald. Her job is to kind of put all the stuff inside the set. So it's kind of a collaborative process and she's putting props and stuff there. And she was like, oh yeah, I just want there to be like loads of obstacles everywhere to give the cinematographer and stuff choices for what to film through. And I was like, ah, love this cohesion because God, do they love to film in between through and round stuff in this film, kind of very metaphorically showing all the kind of things in in, in, in George Smiley's way. Well, I think that se- that sense of just like there being just a stuff everywhere is part of what makes the movie so visually rich. And obviously that's thematically connected, as you just said. But all of those like long shots that seem like they're someone peering in from a distance, it's not how movies are usually shot, especially now. 
And that gives you so much more of a visual sense of the space that the characters are in. And so it just gives the production designer so much more leeway to do interesting things, which, yeah, gives the movie so much more of a sense of like physical texture. The costumes by Jacqueline Duran are also fantastic as well, which obviously plays into that too. Yeah, like t- a full 10 years ago, I wrote a blog post about the uh, the costumes of this film back when I was a costume design blogger, which I kind of, I was like, I'm sure I, I read, I wrote about this because they were such great costumes. And lo and behold, I Googled it and found it somewhat less competently written than my current work, obviously. <laughs> but like, this is truly alongside like Inception, one of my favorite films for just like subtle, but brilliant costuming because the vast majority of the main characters are wearing <laughs> brown and gray suits, but you really get like such an interesting kind of range of their personalities because you've got characters like George Smiley like he is very evocatively described in the novels Um, a lot of those descriptions are also to do with how fat he is which is not something they decided to go for in the movie with Gary Oldman but like the whole point of him is he's just sort of meant to be this you know nondescript figure who is not vain in the slightest and is a bit pathetic looking and his clothes don't fit especially well. I think his suits in this film fit better than those in the books. Yes. Um, they're kind of toned downing the cuck element, which is a crucial factor of his uh, novel <laughs> role. He's certainly like extremely conservatively dressed as are most of the other kind of senior people in the circle in the circus. So, you know, you've got like Toby Jones as Percy Alline and obviously Control. Control is like an older man who looks like he's probably been wearing the same suits for like the past 30 years. And it's this very kind of tweedy, boring, conservative vibe that makes them completely nondescript. But then when you get to the younger characters, you get like a lot more variety. So it's like you've got um Bendit Cumberbatch who is you know, the youngest member of like the office agents is wearing like a full on 70s suit. Like when you get like a full shot, he's got flares, like his haircut's actually quite trendy for an office boy. So he is actually paying attention to fashion. He's got like a paisley tie at one point. And then Tom Hardy is wearing sort of soft, comfortable clothes. So it's this thing that is very kind of in character for Tom Hardy's roles where you've got this sort of softness and vulnerability in terms of his silhouette. Like he's not wearing a suit that gives him shoulders. He's wearing sort of soft sweaters and stuff. And his voice is very uh, just sort of like whispery and delightful. But at the same time, he is a dangerous character, you know, and that is kind of the the key Tom Hardy role is this combination of sort of, you know, masculine and feminine and like softness and dangerousness and vulnerability. So, you know, you've got your your little Tom Hardy costume there, which is uh, tracksuit bottoms. And he's wearing sneakers because he is the only... Uh, non-posh boy in the cast. (laughs) And uh, Colin Firth has that great coat. Yes, which is a really fantastic example of a particular type of posh Englishman. Because if you watch Kingsman, you've got the fantasy of what a posh Englishman dress is like, which is like a gorgeous like fashion plate, delightfully tailored suit. And here you have the reality, which is sort of a sagging middle-aged man who's wearing very brightly coloured socks underneath a tweed suit and then just this sort of like brown faded coat that he's using as sort of a prop and flapping around flamboyantly and it's like it doesn't look good but it is like a distinctive outfit choice oh for sure (laughs) yeah all right so why don't we move on to talking about the end because yes all of the other observations i have about the story and the plot and everything kind of rely on spoiling it so 
Yeah, I just realised there was like a little thing I wanted to say about the production design, which technically is a spoiler <laughs> for who the mole is. So uh, let's let's talk about um, who the mole is and how that impacts how amazing this story yes. is. Um, it's shockingly the most famous person in the cast. She's <laughs> Colin Firth. I think it's pretty obvious in the book by the time you get to the point where it's revealed. But I also saw the movie before I read the book, so I can't really be sure that that's true because yeah. I already knew. I think I was probably surprised. I mean, both of us are not especially good or indeed interested in figuring out what the ending is while watching a film, like prefer to just go with the flow. But just, I mean, the way they reveal it is like so wonderful because it's just really subtle and isn't like a big sort of unveiling. It's like, you know, you, you're moving towards all the clues and then once he's actually revealed, it's like, okay, well, we're just going to cut to like a different shot now. The whole setup of the plot basically is this very clever kind of murder on the Orient Express type thing where all of the characters whom you've been suspecting are passing information to this Russian attache who claims to be a double agent who's helping them. But in fact, it's all a ruse so that Colin Firth, Bill Hyden can pass like real dangerous information to him. And so they think they're getting information from this guy and people who aren't real spies or aren't real double agents think that they're passing like meaningless little dummy bits of intelligence to keep the Russians interested. And meanwhile, Bill Hyden goes in and goes and gives them like the names of various agents who are working in European countries or something. So it's very intelligently handled because you're suspecting everyone and like everyone is involved. It's just that they're not all involved in the way that you might think. And the Hyden character is definitely like, if you know anything about Kim Philby, he clearly is based on him because he's the one who has this sort of sheen of empire about him and he's so posh and also the fact that sort of the idea that he is communist he is moving partly for ideological means but also his cover is that he's like very conservative because there is like a line in the book where someone's like oh he's like to the right of genghis khan and it was just like the background of why he's decided to defect is only touched upon very briefly towards the end but um there's this great acronym which i kind of learned while reading about the cold war which i love and it's very useful and i will share with you now and it is mice it stands for the kind of the four reasons why people generally defect or become double agents and it is money ideology compromise and ego (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and in this case it's a combination of ideology and ego i mean to me, I don't think ideology is really what's going on. It's what he says. He's like, oh, the West is really decaying. And it's like, oh, you, but it's like, you really kind of want to feel special. Yes. You know. And in the novel, when this sort of comes out, or when Smiley goes and talks to him afterwards, he sort of gives this little speech about how he hates America and whatever, but it's totally meaningless. Yeah. And also kind of the whole point of these books is that like, no one really believes anything and it's like yes. especially the british people like, it's like what do you stand for like there's no kind of discussion of why you're doing this it's just like it's your job and like you're super loyal to britain and that's kind of why one of the the final books is so interesting because they give george smiley this send off as a very elderly man and john le Carre gives him this speech about sort of like how he was fighting for like a united europe and sort of fighting for better future and it's like well 
at the time you probably wouldn't have said that because at the time you were just doing this job and that's how you're giving that as your kind of sheen over it in the present day. <laughs> yeah, the big political sort of speech in this movie and in the novel too is when he's discussing meeting Carla and he tells him that there's no difference between the, their systems. And maybe he's just saying that to try to persuade Carla to defect, but it seems like that's kind of the thesis of the whole thing, right? Is like, this is all kind of a joke. And the book gets deeper into the questions of like, what is the role of England in the post-Empire and post-World War II world? And there isn't really an answer to that because the answer is to become less important. And that obviously is not viable for these people. But there's, this comes up in the movie too, but again, it's obviously there's more time to develop the idea in the book. But Aline's whole thing is that like, he wants to suck up to the Americans and we have to really collaborate with the Americans and control is like, I hate the Americans. And, like, and also you read this and you're like, wow, how much has changed? Yeah. <laughs> We're just like doing the same thing, but like gradually worse with every decade. Yeah. You know, it's such an empty and sort of ultimately futile enterprise. So, like, what is the point of all of this? And, you know, the book and the film are obviously not making, not trying to argue that, like, communism is evil. Like, that he's not particularly interested in that. And the big moment where Smiley discovers that it's Haydn at the end of the novel he sort of has this interior monologue where he's really upset and emotional about it because he's known this guy for so long. And he thinks that he has this like personal failure that he sort of always defaults to thinking and feeling sort of on a personal level about individuals as opposed to like a larger structural sort of consciousness. But that's kind of the whole point, right? Is that like the larger structural idea is meaningless and stupid so of course the sort of personal connections are more important and I think the thing that the movie kind of misses from the book is that the novel is really about the tragedy of the Predo character who clearly had some kind of relationship with Bill Hyden it's never explicitly stated because Smiley is like piecing all this stuff together through talking to people and documents and whatnot. But um, one of the things that's really interesting about the novel, which obviously came out, you know, in the early 70s, is that the Haydn character is explicitly bisexual. Like he's sleeping with all of these women, but there's reference to the fact that like the gossip at the circus was that he like went both ways, I think is the exact quote. And that he like brought this like young man to Smiley's house at one point, clearly a sort of a provocation. Yeah. And they make that clear in the film yes, as well. At the end where he's like, okay, can you deal with like this girl I was seeing? And also like, there's a boy too, but Smiley's going through all this sort of these documents. And there's a letter from Haydn to like the guy who recruited him to work in the service um, at Oxford about Predo. That's like, I mean, I'm just, I'll just read a like quote from it because it's just like too much. He says, he has that heavy quiet that commands, hard headed, quite literally, one of those shrewd, quiet ones that lead the team without anyone noticing. You know, he's my other half. Between us, we'd make one marvelous man, except that neither of us can sing. And then on the next page says, uh, by the by, he is virgin, about eight feet tall and built by the same firm that did Stonehenge. Like, I mean... 
come, come on, like, this is too much. And then, like, the notes from the tutors who were sort of interviewed about them, I guess, by the intelligence people who were recruiting them, were like, of course, it was inconceivable that the relationship between the two was more than purely friendly. You're like, yeah, I don't think that that's true. The, the classic, the classic kind of like, well, we're helping you get a job here. <laughs> right. And when Smiley goes to talk to Prito later to ask what happened in, it's in um, Czechoslovakia, rather, in the novel and Hungary in the movie, they're talking about Carla and Jim says something that Carla said about Bill Hyden sleeping with George Smiley's wife. And he gets really mad. He says, I told him, he shouted furiously, told him to his wrinkled little face, you can't judge Bill by things like that. Artists have totally different standards. See things we can't see. Feel things that are beyond us. Bloody little man just laughed. Didn't he know his pictures were, didn't know his pictures were that good, he said. I told him, George, go to hell. Go to bloody hell. If you had one Bill Hyden in your damned outfit, you could call it set and match. <laughs> Which is like, oh, oh no. But, like, the novel starts with Prito at the school, and it sort of goes back to him repeatedly. And I was writing about this in the Patreon blog post that we were doing about the book, but I don't think that Le Carre is sort of being cagey about the sexuality stuff out of, like, prudishness and not wanting to write about it, because it's pretty clear what's going on. I think what he's doing is, like, it's so emotionally painful that he kind of, the book will kind of look at it and then like quickly look away because it's just yeah, like too intense. Which makes perfect sense for the context of the characters. Right. And the whole tragedy of the novel is like these personal and emotional relationships are impossible to sustain in this environment, which destroys human connection, right? And also Jim Prudeau is obsessively loyal while <laughs> the subject of his affections is the opposite. Yes. And he's the one character who you get a sense is like actually kind of a kind person in some way, even though he's done obviously questionable things in his job. But like, even though he is kind of cultivating the kid as like a source, he is really nice to him in a way that is quite affecting. And you see most of it from the kid's point of view. And it's this like awkward little like, you know, 12 year old. And he just like idolizes this man. There's a scene at the end of the movie where Frido kind of yells at him and tells him to like go away. And he doesn't do that in the book the whole time. He's, he's really nice to him. And his parent, the kid's parents are divorced. And it's this like whole saga. And you just get this sense of like, again, loyalty. Of course, the kid's first name is Bill, which is the same as Bill Hyden character, which is not an accident. And I think reading it again this time, I read this book a couple times before, but not in a long time. And I was just like really moved by that part of it because it was just, I just found it really upsetting. And I think that Strong and Firth do a great job of kind of conveying this stuff in these like tiny little moments. But the movie for the most part doesn't engage with this so much and it's more about Smiley and kind of figuring out the mystery and I obviously love this movie we've talked about it for like a zillion minutes at this point but I think this is the one sort of critique I would have of it is that it doesn't quite go far enough 
it almost does what the mo- what the book does and like looks away too much, but like in a way that doesn't totally succeed, I think. Yeah. There is this scene towards the end where you kind of see their eyes meeting in- across the room. And if you've not picked up on what's happening by then, then you're not really paying enough attention. But yeah, I mean, they could put more in because like the real, like the real emotional driving force is the tragedy of Jim Prudhoe. Yeah, even beyond like the relationship between them specifically, because you don't see them interacting in the book, because by the time the book starts, like, Prito's already had to go underground, right? I kind of understand why it's structured the way it is, because these scenes of him like at the school interacting with a bunch of kids are like not germane to the plot of trying to figure out who the mole is. But I kind of think that's what the book is actually about, it's that like all the spy stuff has to kind of lay on top of it. Because again, if you were just to write a book about that one sad guy, it would be so unbearable that like, it would just be like excruciating to read. So instead, you know, he goes off to Smiley interviewing all these people. That's my only thing. I The last sort of five minutes or whatever, the montage that ends the movie is really fantastic. Great use of La Mer. Do we have any other final thoughts? No, I mean, the movie is tremendous, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we just had a few things to say about Tinker Taylor <laughs> over an hour. Next week, we're doing David Lynch's Dune, <laughs> which is going to be very exciting. Um, it's going to be a very fun movie. One of Hollywood's great fiascos, but in a really fun way. Um, I'm a big fan of David Lynch. I've seen a great deal of his work. I think Morgan's seen a bit less. Um, and also Dune is being adapted uh, this year. Or, you know, it has been adapted and will be coming out in a Denis Villeneuve version. Uh, the classy Timothy Chalamet blockbuster with far less bright colours. But um, yeah, David Lynch's Dune is going to be very fun. A wild sci-fi fantasy adventure starring a lot of famous people, including Sting, wearing uh, wild <laughs> outfits. <laughs> this will be a great sort of experiment in podcasting because I know nothing about Dune except that it's kind of racist. And I have seen one David Lynch movie. So we will have truly different perspectives. So that will be next week. Um, if you want to read my blog posts about the novel Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you can do that at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. You can also request that we watch a film there, which is how this episode came to be. Gavia. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, and you can find me on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>